In five, four, four three, three, two. Hello and welcome to Verge ESP, a podcast about art and science on The Verge. My name is Emily Yoshida. I am the entertainment editor at The Verge and I am joined by Liz Lapato. I am the science editor at The Verge. And uh, we've got a lot to talk about today. Later on, I'll be interviewing Jennifer Pong. She's the director of Advantageous, um, a Sundance film that is making its premiere this week on Netflix. And you should definitely check out when you get a chance. Um, but that'll be later uh, in the, the second half of the episode. Right now, though, uh, Liz wants to talk about space. Turns out I want to talk about rockets. <laughs> what a shock. Once again, here I am talking about explosions. Liz and rockets, everybody. <laughs> what Just call team. me the rocket queen. <laughs> uh, so um, the Sunday... Um, SpaceX is going to do a resupply mission for the ISS. It's pretty routine. Um, it's the first mission since um, the the Russian resupply mission uh, unexpectedly went out of control and burned up in reentry. Um, but so that's that's you know a thing. But what's actually pretty exciting about it is it's going to be the third attempt by SpaceX to um, land a rocket on their uh, floating barge, their drone ship. Um, and uh, for those of you who have been paying attention, uh, which I don't expect to be everybody, because I think that there are people out there who don't even realize that there are routine rocket launches going on, which is a shame <laughs> because those things are fun to watch. Um, but so the first time that, that SpaceX tried this, uh, the rocket basically slammed into the floating platform and exploded. Um, let me see what like uh, Elon Musk. <laughs> I think he called it an unscheduled disassembly or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's a really was, that's a really good terminology. Rapid I'm unscheduled right, disassembly. I'm looking right now at a Vine, which I am really delighted to know that SpaceX has a Vine account. That seems like a reason to stay on that platform, if nothing else. But I'm watching a Vine of a rocket repeatedly crashing sidelong into a barge and exploding. Which is pretty exciting. Yeah, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> we live in the age of uh, miracle and wonder here, Emily. <laughs> um, so so here's the deal. Um, uh, so the first one was was the slamming into the, the barge exploding. The second one, it, they got closer. Uh, it looked like it might actually touch down, and then it tilted to the side and fell over. No. Uh, and exploded. And exploded, right? So why... Why do they just explode when they fall over? What is it that combusts? I don't really know, I guess, that much about what's inside oh, the man, rocket. rocket fuel. <laughs> oh, it's just the fuel? Oh, man. I think that's part of it. Um, but some of it has to do with, especially with speed. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that, um, you know, that that is an ongoing thing, one of the reasons why rockets are exciting, even on routine missions, is that they are extremely combustible. These are controlled explosions. Um and, uh, you know, if 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 anything goes a little bit wrong, you get a huge explosion. Um, and so like a lot of rocket pioneers actually died, um, like setting off rockets in yeah. like the turn of the century, uh, 19th into the 20th, like especially in Germany. It was just a very deadly time for people who were excited about sending stuff to space. You sound like you are grinning maniacally while you tell me about <laughs> all these horrible <laughs> Well, that's that's accurate. I have I have groaning a little maniacally, um, in part because it's 
what's exciting to me about this is that uh, it's part of a general trend towards trying to figure out how to reuse rockets and rocket parts because right now they're essentially treated as trash after um, takeoff. So either they're just, uh, you know, they're destroyed in reentry or the pieces are allowed to basically sink into the ocean. Um, right. And one of the things that can happen if we can figure out how to, um, how to, basically reuse parts it makes space a lot cheaper and a lot easier to get to um which is important well would they have to like in in a situation where we were launching rockets with people on them regularly and then i don't know wait so they would always come back down and then break somehow and then we'd have to put them back together Um, is that (laughs) well so we wouldn't even put them back together we would just call it a day and like make a brand new one it was like if 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 for instance i were to fly to new york and my plane, after I landed, were taken out of commission entirely. Uh-huh. That's, that's how we're using rockets right now. It's one and done. Um, so the possibility of being able to rescue some of these pieces and reuse them uh, makes it significantly cheaper to do more launches. Um, and obviously, we're still at the very beginning of this. Like you, you'd have to make sure that these these retrieved parts would, <laughs> would, would be able to withstand a second mission. Um, but I'm pretty excited by the trend, especially as we're seeing more private space companies getting into um, getting into the game, basically, and the idea of space tourism um, and space colonization. Like those things are sort of um, a little bit far out there. But if you want them to be closer, you need to th- figure out a way to make it um, to make the costs manageable, essentially, and just make it kind of sustainable in general. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, so right now they're just re, like every time they do this, they've built one from scratch, essentially. That That's just right. seems like a huge, huge yeah. waste. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and how, and they always, I'm an idiot right now. They always, they always come back. Like they always, the, the, all of these end up landing somewhere or doing, uh, like the, when they're trying to get them on the barges or whatever, um, or how, how often do they just like launch something and it just stays up? Well, so there is a bunch of space junk up there. Like, space trash is my favorite kind of trash. Oh, yeah. Um, Like, so a a lot of rockets have staging. Um, So one stage of engines will break off, um, and then the next next stage of engines will take over, um, particularly if you're going far. And so sort of depending on where those... um, those disassemblies occur, like some of that does wind up as space trash in orbit and some of it just falls back into Earth or uh, burns up on reentry because our atmosphere is pretty thick and those things are moving pretty fast and it gets yeah. very hot. Hmm. Well, I want to, I mean, this is this is all very interesting and uh, you should check out the um, our, our post that Lauren, our, our new Verge science writer, Lauren Gresh, posted on, on this uh on this attempt and all of the wonderful exploding vines within. I kind of wanted to talk about another kind of recycling. Go Um, on. Musical recycling. Um, So last week there was uh, Giorgio Moroto, who was a famous producer, uh, mostly known for his work in the 70s and 80s, um, released his first album in a long time, called deja vu and it has a lot of current artists as well as like kind of disco classic people like kylie minogue on it um and uh one of the more high profile uh, 
I have not listened to the album all the way through, I should say, but the songs I've heard on it, I'm not terribly psyched by. But one of the more high-profile songs on it is um, Britney Spears doing a cover of Tom's Diner by Suzanne Vega. Um, and <laughs> Britney goes full robot. Let's just be clear about this. This is not like Britney going part robot. This is like full robot Britney. It's amazing. It's funny, though, because she still does, like, she still has this sort of catch in her voice, like, where she tries to, it's like the sexy robot thing, just yeah. a little bit in there. <laughs> and and the, the melody of, of, of Tom's Diner is so placid and just, like, feels like it could go on forever and ever. So it's really, really, it's a strange treatment of the song, I have to say. I mean, like, I like it, but it makes me feel very weird. But I love it. <laughs> this, um, but so th- this kind of sparked a discussion of Tom's Diner because Tom's Diner is kind of riffed on in this um, Fallout Boy song that's also really big right now called Centuries, um, which is another very bombastic take on a very mellow, uh, chill song. Uh, and so this started a this started a whole conversation of just about like how often. That song has been used in a sample. I mean, it's like a perennial sample, that melody, either somebody playing that melody or using an actual sample of Suzanne Vega's voice. And uh, to my delight this week, I was reading in um, uh, this new book, uh, How Music Got Free by Stephen Witt, which is uh, really great so far. I haven't finished it, but it's basically about how we got to this point where all music is on the Internet and everybody pirates everything. Um, And... But the first chapter is on the creation of the MP3, like how we even got to the place where we could have sound files that were small enough to be downloaded casually by people. And uh, and just about how they tested all these different ways of compressing sound. And one of the things that they used as sort of a benchmark for whether or not they had accurately uh, compressed or still had like quality sound from a song was Tom's Diner. Get out. Yeah. That was like their test. Like they they had like 15 different modes of compression and they would play them for like a a audience of judges and they'd all listen to these different differently compressed versions of Tom's Diner. That's amazing. (laughs) I had no idea about that. Yeah, that's 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 so wonderful. (laughs) So it's uh, yeah, it's pretty interesting. I kind of like I feel like we need to go back and revisit all the ways that that song has changed our lives because I don't know. I remember the music video being very evocative. Yeah, totally. Um, and like the 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 in fairness to the the weird covers and samples and remixes, like the the song itself was initially I think a cappella, and then it it went huge on a yeah. remix, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you look it up, like I think if you just look up the original version on Spotify or your platform of choice, yeah, it's just the a cappella version, which makes it very easy to um, to repurpose. But right. Yeah. Um, so, fun facts about Tom's Diner, and now it is reborn yet again by the one and only Princess of Pop. Um, I, can I talk about another Princess of Pop real quick? Please also? do it. Um, so, everybody's favorite artist to uh, it, it. Well, I should say the Verge's critical and cultural favorite, uh, Taylor Swift. Because um, we all love her. I have to raise a conscientious objection here, but I'm certainly <laughs> fascinated by her. I don't love her, but I am fascinated. No, that's the thing. That's the thing. It's just like anytime she's always doing something interesting, like she is involved somehow in something interesting that is happening in the music in- industry. So we have to talk about her um, because she is a very 
she's like Jay-Z. She is somebody who represents a very interesting way of being a celebrity and being involved in the music business. And she's always looking to get paid. Like, oh, yeah. Do not get between Taylor and her money, man. Yeah. Um, so she uh, wrote an open letter on her Tumblr to Apple, which I mean, on her Tumblr. She like, let's. Oh, man. It's so wonderful. And it's called I think it's the title of it is to Apple Love Taylor. Like even this open letter about royalties and streaming platforms is still kind of within this kind of wrapping of a angsty post on Tumblr by a teen. I mean, I I just love it. I love it. And I love <laughs> I love that, you know, by her getting, you know, getting on her personal blog and calling out Eddie Q and and uh and you know, making this case, I guess, for independent artists who aren't going to be paid for streams during what was going to be Apple's free three-month trial for Apple Music once that launched, uh, it took 17 hours for them to reverse course and say that they were going to pay artists and labels for those three months. She's in Um, a pretty unique position, though, right? I mean, like, her label only exists for Taylor Swift. And so, like, she's not part of, like, these bulk bargaining things where a lot of artists don't really have a whole bunch of say. Like, her label is her. Yeah. So, I mean, like, that puts her in a very strong position and is maybe a good argument for indie indie labels. Her, yeah, she has, from the very beginning, she has been incredibly savvy about how she has managed her label how she has ownership over her songs all of that it's uh it's pretty smart i feel like her i feel like the the label big machine is is like her dad is the owner i want to say um i'm not I, I, I you can't hold me to that but any, anyway it's all like very close to the vest all of all of her various endeavors. Yeah, um, I think of it as being like real life Nashville as like yeah. by Taylor Swift instead of by Connie Britton. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, this prompted a lot of discussion about, uh, you know, not only Taylor Swift, but whether or not um, whether or not she was right, whether or not uh, and, 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 you know, if Apple's screwing up, frankly, uh, by kind of alienating people and now kind of having this public dispute with Taylor Swift. I mean, they did the, really the only thing they could do, which was immediately uh, immediately switch course, because if there had been any kind of sustained public beef with Taylor Swift, like that would that would affect a huge chunk of their uh, their their potential audience and just their like their PR in general, like that's right. a, just a bad look. That doesn't make you look. I mean, you know, it, it now now Apple now companies like Apple and and Spotify and stuff are becoming you know having the same spot as like our uh, kind of corporate villains as record companies were having around like 2001 during all the first file sharing sort of um, dust ups. But I don't know. I I have to say that I you know regardless of. Um, my feelings about Taylor Swift personally and like her motives for this, which are obviously to get paid. I mean, she can talk about other smaller artists, but she isn't. No, she she's can't there really, for her own bank account. That's yeah, what she's for. And, and she can't really speak to that experience um, deal, being an indie artist in this current uh, I- ecosystem. She can talk about being a very big, high profile artist in this ecosystem. She definitely knows what she's talking about as far as like getting money in that situation but i think um i think a lot of people are really happy probably 
to have their music that accessible. Probably others aren't. You know, I think it's I think it it completely depends how much money you're making in other ways, whether it's touring or licensing or anything like that. So um, and she's making money in all those ways. So it doesn't really matter. But um, I, I just I think it's like <laughs> I kind of want to back up when people start talking about her not knowing what she's talking about, because the very idea of somebody not getting paid for three months of work, essentially, it's not crazy or entitled to ask for that, even if you're a very, very big pop star. Like, that is very, very okay to ask for that. And we're not talking about a huge amount of money, like, compared to what she makes touring or doing anything else. Um, Listen, like, if The Verge hadn't paid me for three months, I would be out. Yeah. (laughs) Like, that's just, like... You know, that's just let's let's not even like in the context like <clears throat> in the context of any kind of work, um, but especially the in, the music industry where like the I mean that royalty stream isn't a ton of money, but it's money, and like yeah. you need that to feed yourself and live. And like Taylor is going to be less impacted by that than a lot of other artists, but like I can imagine for smaller artists in particular, that would be a real gut punch. Yeah, and and I think like it's it, I don't I don't think we would be having any kind of debate over this if we were talking about say an actor being asked to do a movie for free um and saying that they should appreciate it because they got exposure from being in the movie i don't think we would ever say that like we would we would think that people were pretty much within their right to ask for like scale like minimum you know what what sag you know demands that people make at minimum for making a film like and that's not a contrary to popular belief you're not automatically a millionaire when you're in a movie nor are you automatically a millionaire if you release an album like that or are on tv like a lot of people have pretty you know the the bulk of working actors are not movie stars who make a ton of money so but yeah i mean i think that there's i think because there's been so much discussion and you know that everything with title getting so blown out of proportion and just this the general optics of very big, rich musicians sort of wielding their power in that way. It kind of makes it hard to argue the point, well, yeah, they should get money, though, for the thing that they make. Like, <laughs> I, just, I don't think fair. that's in question. I mean, yeah. like, it's one of those like, you could make the argument, as Lewis Hyde does, that real art is a gift and that we should have a gift culture around art. And that's great. But like, um, you know. I think people deserve to be paid for their work. And one of the things that really frustrates me working in a semi-creative field is that there are all these people who think you should just do it for love. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, love is wonderful, but love isn't going to buy me cat food for my kitten. You know, yeah. like uh, the whole idea of working for exposure yeah. and exposure alone just really frustrates me. Like it's this thing that doesn't exist in any field that isn't creative. Yeah. And when I see people comparing it to like, oh, well, how do you get people into your restaurant? You give free samples out. It's like, no, that's not. You can't. These are not <laughs> analogous situations. It's that's like, right. I, I don't know. So, um, you know, I, I, I feel I you know, I, I think we talked before. I'm very like ambivalent about Apple Music in general, but I probably will use the service. Um, and it doesn't make a difference to me whether or not Taylor Swift is on that service because I own her albums anyway. <laughs> but, wow. Yeah. Wow. That's a, that's a big self-dox there. Oh, no. Everybody, every, I, I, it does public knowledge. I, <laughs> I do not. I've, I've, I've sung 
uh, read way too many times at karaoke in public to have to try to keep any of that a secret. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's just a, it's an interesting moment, I think, though, for I hate saying that it's an interesting moment, but it, it, it is that you can see a pop star um, and, you know, a musician. Pop star sounds diminutive. She is a musician and writer and also a very big star who is using her leverage and her fan following to essentially bargain with Apple, although she's still not going to be on the service probably. Um, but yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Um, so for me, it highlights one of the things that I'm like a little bit confused about with the Apple streaming service that I just like couldn't quite put a finger on the last time we talked about it. Like, mm-hmm. isn't, isn't the streaming service in some way in competition with iTunes? Like, are you, if you're, yeah. if you're logged into the streaming service and you have all of this stuff available, why would you buy an album? Um, that's a good question. I, I don't really know. I mean, I know that I still would, but I think I'm kind of weird. The more that I read other people's takes on how, you know, how Apple Music is going to change things, I feel like I am in the minority of people who still really likes to have a version on my phone or whatever my device is that I can access whether or not I'm on the internet. Um, that's pretty important to me. But yeah. I think a lot of people, I mean, I guess it's the same way that a lot of people use Spotify now. But the thing is, I just think I still buy more albums than most people. Most people just still stream. But it will help iTunes for those people because there will be a very, very easy way to go from using their stream to making a purchase of an album. Um, yeah, it's it's not it's not entirely like- clear. For me, at least, like Spotify and Spotify has the um, I have the paid Spotify so I can have yeah. stuff like locally on my phone, uh, which is useful if I've made a long trip for yeah. going out to the middle of nowhere. Um, but so for me, like what what ended up happening is that I stopped buying music digitally mm-hmm. um, and I have a record player. So I spend my money on records instead, um, some of which are used <laughs> so that money yeah. isn't going to the artist. But you know, I so I certainly understand the the impulse to have your own copy of something, but for me, like that copy has moved from being an online copy to an offline copy, and that's really, I might be yeah. weird too. <laughs> so that's who knows? really no, that's that's really interesting though. I think on some lo- level, whether it's owning a digital copy or having a vinyl copy or a physical copy in general, I think that it's for a certain generation and maybe like you know younger people don't really care as much about it because they didn't grow up with it, but it's going to still feel sort of essential to own some records, even if you have access to a bunch or all of them. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it'll be interesting to see how sales are are affected by that, because basically you're taking everybody who has iTunes on their phone already, adding the Apple Music service, especially during the free period. And it'll be really interesting to see how that affects Apple sales for those three months or um, not Apple sales, uh, album sales. Those next three months. But, um, do you want to talk about quantified Let's sex? talk about sex, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of music. Um, so uh, on the site right now, we have a report um, from Lux Alp, Alp Traum, I think is how she pronounces it. I've although never I've never known heard how it. to pronounce it. Yeah, me neither. Um, Lux, if you're listening, I'm really sorry if I've mangled your last name. Um, we need, we need an uh, audio clip like tweeted to us. You're right. Her pronouncing her last name. 
Um, but so she wrote us a nice piece about these quantified sex apps that have been popping up. Um, so there's Nipple, uh, which rep- <laughs> relies on user-reported data. There's Spreadsheets, um, which is data collected through uh, motion sensors. That's a very subtle one there. Yeah, that's a good one, actually. I yeah. like that pun a lot. Uh, and Lovely, which is um, collecting data through an enhanced cock ring. Um, but the idea, yeah, right. Uh-huh. Um, the basic idea is that the more you know about like the sex you've had in the past, the better sex you're going to have in the future. Um, which is sort of the idea behind, I think, the entire quanti- quantified self movement. Right, is that you can generate behavioral data and then make decisions about uh, what you're doing right. based on that data. And it's the thing is. With the quantified self-movement, which just, I'm going to be super honest about this, I don't find especially convincing. Yeah. Um, The things that you can measure are not always the things that matter. Right. Um, And, like, sex is the place where that's most obvious, right? Because, like, you think about good sex, um, (laughs) uh, you think about uh, things like, you know, communication and, like, maybe eye contact and your mood and like any of a number of other things that have nothing to do with like, for instance, uh, in the case of spreadsheets, they measure um, duration and thrusts and decibel peak. And that has like nothing to do with any kind of good sex experience I've ever had. Like those things have literally never entered my mind. Well, it's sort of like, have you ever ever watched uh, Masters of Sex? No, I haven't. Uh, well, that comes back, I think, in a few weeks. Um, I haven't watched the last season. I don't. Yeah, the last season I didn't watch. But yeah, the, the, a lot of the experiments are like. I mean, he, he was doing the first ever experiments on sex, so like he was just tracking very r- rudimentary things like heart rate and uh, and that kind of thing uh, and body temperature. Uh, but even then, it's like. He just wanted to know what was going on with the body during sex because nobody knew. Nobody had right. done that. Uh, but it wasn't, it was not uh, meant to, yeah, there was, it was not meant to talk about quality of sex or anything. It was just like about what happens to your body when you're having an orgasm, that kind of thing. Right, right. And like the thing about, the thing about good sex is that it often varies. Like what is good one time might not be the thing that you're in the mood for another time. Like there's no like optimized like speed or force or any of that for sex really. Like it sort of depends on how you and your partner are feeling. It's very much a contingent thing, which is why I keep leaning on communication. Yeah. You know, well there's something so uh, like I, I person, and I don't, I don't say this with much science to back it up. I just think that most quantified self stuff is totally bullshit. I'm actually with you on that. I mean, a lot of it leans towards like calorie counting, which we already know is not like great, especially for weight loss. Yeah. Um, And like, I also suspect that like, if you're doing all of this time, like all this quantified self stuff, like tracking, like all your workouts, everything, like, I think that that may, and this is like totally a suspicion on my part with nothing in particular to back it up except just like the observations of people I know who are in the movement. Um, I think that may actually stress you out more. Yeah. Um, Because you're devoting all of this time to like looking at all these metrics and trying to optimize things and like find the very best thing instead of doing things like going out and seeing your friends which will make you happy. You know, like, so there's that. But like particularly in the case of sex, if there are certain like goals that are set up by your app that you feel like you have to achieve, I feel like that could actually really be detrimental yeah. to good sex. And and all of those, like, I actually don't think of it as being too much, for myself personally, as being too much different than doing quantified workout stuff. Because for me, working out is a very emotional thing. And it's something that I do 
when I'm happy. It's something that makes me happy. And I do a better job at it if I'm enjoying myself more. And that does not come from counting how many steps or making sure that I'm running a route that has like the right incline or something like it's going to be complete. Most of the things that make me feel like I did a good job. And <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I was just thinking Some about endorphins, that. man. It's the endorphins yeah, yeah. in both cases. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like the things that make me feel like I did a good job and that everybody's happy um, and that I, it, I did something that was good for my life are not going to be things that I can track on an Apple Watch. Um, and I think that it's sort of like, it's sort of like, bonsai trees or something it's just like another way of trying to harness nature uh in a way that i don't feel like at least bonsai trees are just art or something interesting to look at if you were just going to track a graph of like this is what it looks like like statistically when i have sex isn't this cool looking like that's one thing but then trying to make that into something that has more meaning i don't know And, like, all of that stress, like, that's not conducive to relaxing and having good sex. Like, I can certainly imagine, like, a world in which, like, a dude is no longer able to get it up because he's too worried about is he going to be able to beat his last, you know... You know what I mean? Like this is some I, black mirror shit there. <laughs> right? Like I just like I I really think that the whole concept is especially with respect to sex is really wrong headed. Like if you're a marathon runner and you need to like figure, you know, especially if you're an elite marathon runner, like I can understand wanting to quantify everything about your workout, but most of us aren't elite marathon runners, you yeah. know? Like we're just people. And like <laughs> yeah. You know, enjoyment is a big part of it because I feel like Especially with exercise, since you bring it up, like a lot of people approach it like eating their vegetables, like, oh, I have to go exercise, you know, it's good for me. And like, for me, like the thing that's been successful in terms of like having an exercise routine is doing stuff that I like, which turns out is stuff that doesn't feel like exercise. So like yoga, hiking, Mm -hmm. backpacking, like those things are like the way that I, the ways that I prefer to work out because I don't like, I'm not on a treadmill. I'm not doing something that's like boring, you know, like I'm not walking an extra block around my apartment before I go in so I can make some arbitrary number of steps for the day. Like, that's right. Like, and you know, like sucking the joy out of things that, that, can potentially really provide you with mood boosts like that seems like to me like what what some of this quantified self stuff does yeah you know yeah it's I, I think it it's interesting when you brought up like a like olympic runners and that kind of thing i think there's this sort of in general an impulse where it's like there's a single line a spectrum of doing it good and not doing it good and like we always put these you know professional people uh, at one end of that and that's what we are trying to aspire to when there are really like way more many nuances that are exist in between like sitting on your couch all day and being an olympian but it's like oh no i should aspire to be an olympian because that's the actual the the absolute peak of human activity when you know that's not really for everybody or practical for everybody Right. And those people, let's remember, are usually freaks of nature. Like, you know, like Michael Phelps has that incredible wingspan that Mm -hmm. none of us have. We don't have the same kind of build that he does. You know what I mean? Like comparing yourself to people whose bodies are not your own as a like a goal to get to, like not to get all hippy dippy yoga class on you, but like be do what your body can do the best that it can do that day. And like, you know what that is. Yeah. Yeah, you'll feel yeah, you'll feel when something is you're not doing something that's good for yourself and you should be able to still hear that when that happens as as opposed to checking your watch to make sure that you haven't done something wrong. Like, I don't know. 
Yeah, it's like part of remaining, I don't know, connected to yourself, right? Like, like, in some ways, like, introducing this mediator of, like, uh, whether it's for sex or whether it's for exercise or for food, um, in some ways can really disrupt your ability to hear yourself and hear what you need. Totally. Yeah. That's uh well we we still work for a tech site but uh you can you can find Liz and I backpacking through the wilderness. Um, <laughs> yeah, the I mean weeks. like <laughs> after CES, Neil, I started teasing me. He was like, "How was your vision quest?" Because I went up to um, you can go to Red Rocks, didn't, didn't you? Or no, I went to Zion. Oh, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, uh, which is gorgeous, and everybody should go. And that's is amazing. Maybe the best reason to fly into Las Vegas ever is to drive up to Zion. <laughs> it's worth your time. Awesome. Um, yeah. This, I, uh, this podcast brought to you by the National Park Service. <laughs> no, I'm at, that's actually like on my list for the next couple of weeks. I'm going to go try to do this hike that's upstate that um, apparently is very popular. I have a whole new world of hikes to attack here. Um, oh, on yeah. The, other, the Adirondacks the are amazing. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, you know, we'll be unplugging um, for throughout the summer. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I kind of want to get over to this interview that I did with Jennifer Pong real quick. Um, All right. Well, and- so at the risk of sounding like a total ignoramus, <laughs> you're going to have to tell me who she is. No, you are not an ignoramus because this is a very tiny film that I have just been kind of championing in my own tiny way since I saw it in Sundance. Uh, it's not at Sundance in January. Um, it's a film called Advantageous, and it's directed by Jennifer Pong. It uh it is a it is a sci-fi film. Uh, All right. It is about, among other things, body swapping uh, or like, uh, I guess, the transference of a brain to another body, to be more specific. Um, and it's also just a really amazing mother-daughter story, if that <laughs> makes any sense. Um, but it is on. It is available to stream uh, as of yesterday. If you're listening to this on. Wednesday um, on Netflix and it also is having a small um, theater run. It's going to be in San Francisco, um, which is where Jennifer's from and also in New York, I think for the next couple week at, weeks at various theaters around both cities. Well, that's exciting. I think I'm probably going to have to go check it out. Yeah, yeah, you should definitely check it out. And um, I am going to talk to Jennifer right now. Hi. Hi, Emily. Thanks for having me. Yeah, to be here. Of course. Um, so Jennifer is. Uh, you're based in in San Francisco, and um, you're, we were just talking right before we started recording. You um, actually have been uh, the recipient of a grant in addition to this awesome um, uh, distribution on Netflix, which is pretty cool. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Oh, sure. Um, it's uh, from the. San Francisco Film Society, in partnership with one of their major supporters, uh, the Kenneth Rainin Foundation, and Jennifer Rainin, who administers the grant with Michelle uh, Truner-Sileo, they decided that they it was time to kind of put um, put some support behind women filmmakers who were interested in genre filmmaking. Um, so they they picked three women. Um, two of them are based in New York, um, and and myself, who's based in San Francisco. And the idea is that they, they give them, you know, twenty-five to forty thousand dollars, and um, and uh, networking opportunities and development opportunities for for their projects. Um, so, uh, Stuart Thorndike and um, Nicole Beckwith and myself uh, were recipients, and Stuart's doing a, a horror film, and Nicole's doing uh, 
a, a comedy, a really cool comedy, and I'm doing a science fiction film. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, that was one of the things that struck me. Well, there's several things that struck me about Avantageous. Uh, one, that it's a, a genre a genre film directed by a woman, which is, um, you know, something we can always have more of. And um, And secondly, I mean... And this is almost something I don't even want to bring up and, like, trumpet too loudly. But, I mean, the fact that it was just a really smart story that was primarily cast by Asian actors but was not about being Asian necessarily, which just felt like that felt futuristic to me in addition to the <laughs> setting and everything else. I was like, wow, we can just have these actors here and these and these people, like, you know, people of color here and it's not a part of the plot or a part of the character's identity. It's just those are the characters in the story. Um, what was the, was that something you really wanted to consciously go about with casting or was those the actors that you just knew and wanted to work with? Um, it was pretty conscious. I mean, most of my life I've been trying to to humanize and, and normalize perceptions of people who are not necessarily like your standard um Caucasian looking American um, and so so I, most of my films have diversity involved and, and but not really kind of as much trumpeting identity issues in, in, in a kind of more obvious sense but rather having um, having these characters face challenges that anyone in the world might be able to identify with mm-hmm. um, usually work and family problems or in our case in, in a science fiction situation it's you know um, about you know what how far would you be willing to go using technology uh, to uh, to get yourself ahead or to have an advantage and protect your kids future yeah we should probably kind of go over at least the the lightest the lightest possible summarization of the plot because there's obviously a lot of surprises in it but um but I, I, do you want to kind of do you want to kind of give your your uh, log line or or pitch for it, I guess? Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Um, so, advantageous follows a single mother and her daughter um, in a near future metropolis, a little bit like Manhattan, but a lot of people see see their city in it, so it can be any city. Yeah. Um, and uh, the mother, uh, her name is Gwen, and she's she, she's faced with a choice, uh, you know, whether or not she should employ this new technology that allows uh, her to put herself into a new body, a younger body, in order to keep her position as the spokesperson for this biotech firm. And she has to think about if it's worth doing because, um, you know, it's a, it's a near-future economy that's pretty stressed out and... And it's hard to to get by, and it's a situation where most people want to to do anything they can to kind of enter the elite class because anything other than that is dangerous. Hmm. And so she's concerned about her daughter and 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 considering these really extreme options. Yeah. Also, access, yeah, and then the whole other thing about access to education. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was so I think. One of the things that I like about science fiction, one reason I've always liked science fiction, is that I always feel like the first half of any science fiction film, especially, um, you know, with TV, you have a longer time to kind of build the world. But in the first half of a sci-fi film, it's almost like a mystery and you're trying to figure out why is this world the way this is? Like, what are the things in our world today? Like, what? how have the things in our world today become what 
I'm seeing in this sort of um, imagination of what the the future would be like. And um, I think so much of that was really interesting from like, yeah, what you talked about, the education stuff, the economic stuff, how it seems like a very um, kind of antiseptic city. But then you've got terrorist attacks and, you know, just kids sleeping outside with no explanation. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But what, can you can can you talk a little bit about like how you kind of built that world or how you started imagining it or conceptualizing it? Sure. So the film uh, the film did start as a short film for the ITVS Future States series, and in the short film you see, you'll see that we we don't expand. The whole point of creating a future was to expand the world, and um, and in the short we just we have the 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 primary, the A plot, which is, you know, what, what Gwen's going through, but you don't, you aren't exposed to all those details you just mentioned. Um, when, when we decided to expand to the feature, um, Jacqueline came on board, Jacqueline Kim, who also plays Gwen and, and we started writing together and we, and we started looking at many different things. And one of the details that Jacqueline brought or was excited about were these kind of alpha mothers who are part of the elite, who are really strategic in the way that they, they, um, plot their kids' future and security. Um, and then um, I, was, I was always interested in, in some of my past work, about, I've done the same thing. I'm always interested in these incidents um, that happen like explosions, sudden explosions out of nowhere that we, and, and the way that, you know, a normal person would just react to an explosion. Um, and so, so I was kind of imagining a world where the United, where the United States had become a little bit like other countries in our in our planet, yeah. <laughs> where and and where we had to kind of take for granted that something kind of really horrifying would yeah. happen on a fairly regular basis, um, and 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 pos- and the question I guess we're leaving our viewers with is you know what what created the situation, you know what makes a world that looks pretty you know, composed to still have these expected disruptions that are, that are, they're pretty extreme. Well, in a way, it almost reminded me of school shootings. I mean, not to get completely morbid, <laughs> but that, I mean, but it also relates to the idea of trying to protect, you know, our children. Uh, but just the fact that these things seem sort of pedestrian to the kind of background players in, in the film and, mm-hmm. you know, how, how almost used to, news of another school shooting we've become. I mean, it's still always horrifying, but it's not that first initial shock of something like Columbine. Um, and that's, I mean, that's just seemed really, really, really dark, but, um, yeah. but definitely interesting to see that kind of, iter- like, that's something you can do with science fiction, though, is you can kind of take it to the logical extreme, um, mm-hmm. which it seemed like you had a lot of, I don't know if fun is the right word, but like it seemed like it was, it was, it was a cool process. Um, right. Some of the process itself of creating the explosions was, was fun. You oh, know, yeah. Actually figuring out, you know, how what an explosion would look like. But yeah, I mean, the conception of, of you know, a, this, this world and, and whether or not we were going to allow ourselves to get it to, to go to that dark place. Yeah. You know, it was definitely a consideration for sure. So, um, so you did a film before this. It was also at Sundance, right? Um, Half Life. That's right. Yeah. Yes. And was that sort of? I haven't seen it, but was that? Um, do you feel like it was related at all, or a, a warm up at all to this film in any way? Or for sure, there. You know, um, it took. Uh, that's a that's a near future family drama as well, <laughs> uh-huh. and um, it 
it uh, takes place after global warming has hit its tipping point, and and so uh, it's a fa- it's a family that's kind of experiencing suburban malaise in spite of the fact that the world has already drastically changed and we've lost our coastlines. And it really is just about, you know, family drama, you know, mother, daughter, and her, and a and daughter's, and a, a little kid, a little brother. And, and they're all kind of dealing with their normal pain in life because their father has left them. And, um, and, and they escape into these animated fantasies. Hmm. So in terms of warm-up, yeah, there were, there were some visual effects and there was animation. And so I'd, I'd been through that pipeline before um, and kind of was able to, you know, kind of t- uh, recall my experience with that project for this project. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, I, in my experience, I think it's, it's really hard for some reason for a lot of filmmakers to nail that balance between telling something that feels like a really true and genuine human story with, you know, something more high concept like you see in genre and specifically sci-fi stuff. Like, how do you approach that? Like, is it already a, a full, like, human story that you have before you add in all that stuff? Or does it get built up simultaneously? Oh, yeah, I get asked that a lot. Um, so I, so what you're asking, you know, yeah, so a lot of people when they when they – when you have the sci-fi side of it, yeah, you can you can weigh it, you can make it too sci-fi or too dramatic. And for me, um, I think the key is you know having is having the idea be as cohesive as it can be to begin with. So I, I was lucky in this case. I was just thinking about um, the idea of consciousness jumping from body mm-hmm. to body, and and one idea I was playing with was the idea of a woman le- trying to leave behind her her body. Um, and get into another body to leave behind her past. Um, but then I was kind of looking at mother-daughter relationships and, and you know, the kind of the al- an allegory for, you know, changing one's appearance in order to uh, to get ahead, and then it kind of all gelled at once. Yeah. Um, so I think it was just a moment of, of something that worked. But um, but yeah, you can get trapped in if in, in genre expectations if you if you decide that you're making a science fiction film first. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, do you feel like I mean, and, and maybe it's sort of because of that because there's sort of a spotty history with that that sometimes there's a a little bit of a prejudice against um, against genre films and sci-fi films, especially at like a more not mainstream, but, you know, uh, just standard drama or comedy festival like uh, like Sundance or, you know, any of the other major festivals. Do you feel mm-hmm. that at all? That's a great question. I'm, you know, I, I hadn't felt that um, uh, right off the bat. I think maybe just because of the people I, I'm around. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can say that I've been exposed to a sci-fi that hasn't been inspiring. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and I know that there, you know... Maybe someone who likes a, a nice mother-daughter story won't necessarily know that, you know, Advantageous is actually more of a mother-daughter story right. than, than your traditional, like, shoot 'em up crazy alien, sci-fi, you know, body transfer issue mm-hmm. um, uh, film. But, um, but yeah, I think occasionally, only occasionally will I, will I find someone who is repulsed by sci-fi. But And I've, I've had people see, see our film and say, yeah, I usually don't like sci-fi, but I love this film. Yeah. Um, and then other, and maybe it kind of also works the other way. Like people who like science fiction, 
you know, they like this film in a different way than they like other science fiction. Yeah. I'm sure that has to be really rewarding to hear. That seems like a really tough thing to crack. Yeah. <laughs> it's, cool. it's good. It's a relief. So, um, I, uh, so I, it's going to be, so it's already out on Netflix, um, as of this, as of this airing, but, um, but you also mentioned it's going to be out in some theaters if you are in some select cities. Um, that's right. Yeah. We decided we wanted to make sure it was available for people to watch if they didn't have, you know, the optimum, um, setup. So we are going to be having some special, we're going to have a week of screenings in both New York and San Francisco. Um, on June 26, it'll start playing at the Cinema Village, and I'll be there for the for one of the screenings for a Q&A um, with some of our cast and crew, probably including Jacqueline, Kim, and, and some other local cast and crew. And um, on June 28th, We'll also start on June 26th. We'll also start in San Francisco, but I'll I'll be back in San Francisco at the Big Roxy on June 28th for a for a cast and crew screening. I mean, a, a screening with a Q and A for the public, and I'll be there. Uh, and that that's going to be co-presented by um, the Center for Asian American Media. So it should be a, a good one. Cool. That's awesome. Well, um, yeah, I highly recommend checking out the film. It's called Advantageous. Um, it's on Netflix and in any of those places that Jennifer just mentioned. Um, thank you so much for joining me. It was so cool to finally get to talk to you. Thanks so much. I, I love this. I love The Verge. <laughs> well, that's our show. And thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks. As you know, the show is an every other Wednesday affair. So you should make sure to subscribe on iTunes just in case you're forgetful like I am. You can do that by going to iTunes.com slash Verge ESP. Or you can subscribe on any other podcast app you like uh, or on SoundCloud. We're not picky. <laughs> what we would like, though, is if you're enjoying the show, or maybe even if you aren't, uh, to go ahead and review and rate us um, because we are thirsty and we want to know what you think. Give us those stars. Give us those gold stars. <laughs> um, um, I'm Emily Yoshida. I'm Liz Lopato. And we'll see you back in two weeks. Bye.